0: Today we're picking up from verse 13 and the headline is The Promise of God, The Promise of God. I haven't got time to go back over where we left off. Uh, I refer you to the internet to find those, uh, the online sermon audio and notes. You might find a copy of the notes around still, but the, the notes are also online. Jack puts them up as well. But after the severe warning against apostasy rejecting and denying Jesus, not just falling into sin, rejecting and denying Jesus in this chapter, the encouragement picks up and continues. We'll pick up just a few verses back in verse 9. But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you than this falling away, and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and your love, Which you have shown towards his name in having served and in still serving the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Notice the word hope. So that you will not be sluggish, lazy, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made the promise, notice that promise, not promises, To Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he, Abraham, obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given, as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, And one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's stop and pray. Now you're settled. Holy Spirit, please lead us into the truth today, and apply it to our hearts, so that, as John Piper said, we may see and taste. We may see the glory of God in the face of Jesus. We may taste again of his goodness and his greatness and his power, his wisdom and his strength, and be drawn to him. In fact, may we know that we are already fastened to him by bonds which cannot be broken. Amen. You know, the chapter and verse divisions and markers in our Bibles are not part of the original Scriptures. And while chapter 6 has as the last word in our English Bibles, the word Melchizedek, the letter in fact flows right on and in chapter 7 talks about what Paul the Apostle has been trying to head towards since chapter 4, which is to talk to us about Jesus being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, a priest and a king. So he's not like the, the... the, 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 the Judah kings and he's not like the Levitical priesthood he's greater than both, those were only pictures of him in, uh, and he's pictured as Melchizedek so here we want to talk, he wants to talk about and I would love to talk about Jesus being this high priest and this king but we're not there yet, we've got to finish these verses here in chapter 6 the promise of God. Let's, let's see if I can do this kind of fairly quickly. First of all, God makes promises. That's an extraordinary thing. God makes promises. To who? To people. He promises people things. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. He made promises to Abraham. He made promises to David. We're looking at a particular promise here that he made to Abraham. The theme of God's promises runs right through the New Testament. It's a major theme of Romans, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Hebrews, James, and 2 Peter. And Jesus is both the heir of all the promises of God and the fulfillment of the promises of God. So here's a very key scripture. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20. For as many as are the promises of God in him, in Jesus, they are, yes, therefore also through him is our, 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 our men to the glory of God through us. They are summed up in Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus, And we find everything we need. All the promises of the Scripture that we could find are in Jesus. In going to Him, we find in Him all the promises of God. All summed up in Jesus. Now here's another remarkable thing. God makes some promises even with an oath. Even with an oath. It's one thing to make a statement. It's a more serious thing to make a sworn statement. Now, I'm looking over for where Dean should be, but he's probably working today, so he can't correct me. Is there any other lawyers here? Any other solicitors here? Okay. See, Wikipedia told me this, and Dean will tell me it's wrong, I'm sure. Never mind. In English law, all practicing solicitors are certified to be commissioners for oaths. That doesn't mean they can give you permission to swear or disallow it. It means that they can take a witness statement made under oath. Or they can witness a written statement, which they usually write on your behalf, which is called an affidavit. All right? You say, I I promise that this is true. This is my sworn statement. And they sign it off. Oh, I've got one over there. (laughs) David. David's a lawyer. He works in property law. In court, and I've been there as a witness, and I've been there as a juror in court. I haven't been there as an offender, but... Yet. Thank you. In court, a witness gives evidence under oath. And the oath goes like this. If you're a Christian, you swear on the Bible. If you're a Muslim, you swear on the Koran and so on. I swear by Almighty God that the evidence I shall give shall be the whole truth, shall be the truth, sorry, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And if you're not a, a believer, you solemnly declare and affirm that you're going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and the whole truth. Lying in court is called perjury, and it's a criminal offense. You can go to jail for it. In fact, two conservative politicians did go to jail for just that in the last decade or so, for perjury. Now, this is what, God, what Paul is saying here. God did not just make a promise to Abraham. He made that promise with an oath. He swore by himself. Let me put that up in some graphic terms. Almighty God swore by Almighty God himself that he would keep his promise. Now that is, wow, what? I swear by myself. In other places, in the the prophets, you've got God saying, as I live, says the Lord, I'm going to do this. God has just sworn by himself. That's unbreakable. That's unbreakable. He doesn't even put a condition on it when he swears something like that. It, whatever, whatever you think, whatever happened, I'm going to do this. He swore it by himself. Now, let's think about God swearing a promise to Abraham. When did God do that? Well, it was in Genesis 22. After Abraham had been led by God to take Isaac up a hill to sacrifice him, and he'd almost got to the point of plunging the knife and, and the angel of God says, "Stop Abraham," and showed him a, a ram which was caught in a thicket, and they sacrificed the ram instead. And at the end of that, I haven't got time to go through the whole chapter with you, and the whole chapter is full of prophetic foreshadows. Jesus, uh, Abraham offers his son, his only son those are the words of God. because guess what God's going to do in the future. Abraham's future. He's going to offer up his son, his only son. God provides the lamb to be the sacrifice. Guess who Jesus is? The Lamb Lamb of God. And some scholars even say that the hill upon which Abraham almost sacrificed Isaac was in fact, in time, the same hill upon which Jesus' cross was erected. God will provide for himself the Lamb for a burnt offering. God then swears his promise to Abraham. Because you have not withheld from me your son... Your only son. God does this. The angel, the messenger of the Lord, called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you've done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens. And as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. A very literal translation of the Hebrew there is blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply you. The, 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 saying it twice is like doubling it up, multiplying it up, the way it works. Now in Galatians... Paul points out God did not make this promise to seeds to many a nation but to Abraham's seed one person one direct descendant and heir and that descendant that heir is Jesus Messiah he is the heir of the promise of God the promise that was sworn to Abraham and guess what Scripture goes on to say in many places in the Testament, if you are in Jesus, you are a co-heir with him. And that makes us children of Abraham too. We are the fulfillment of the promise the people of Messiah, the children of Abraham, will be multiplied like the stars of the heavens and the sand on the seashore. They will possess the gate of their enemies and in Jesus all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's how the New Testament interprets that great sworn promise that God made to Abraham. We who trust in Jesus are blessed with faithful Abraham and indeed are Abraham's promised children. So God swore this oath, this promise with an oath. But look, this, was, this happened to Abraham and this was written in Genesis and interpreted in Galatians and so on to show us something. Let's go back a bit. Verse 17 of Hebrews 6. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise. Who did we just say that? Us. Heirs with an S. He wants to show the heirs of the promise. That's us. Are you convinced about that? We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Heirs of the promise of God that he swore to Abraham. Heirs of that promise. He wanted to convince us of the unchangeableness of his purpose. And so he swore it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we would have assurance. Now, I'm going to come to the the second half of that verse in a minute. First, I've got ahead of myself. Who are the heirs of the promise? We are. Okay? We are. It wasn't just for Abraham's sake, but for all who would become children of Abraham through faith in Christ Jesus, Messiah Jesus. What is the promise? What is the promise? Well, it's that the seed would come. But the seed should have a capital S because it's a person. It's one person. It is Jesus himself. Jesus, the seed of Abraham, the Messiah. And through him, all the families, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. How? By them coming to faith in him and therefore entering the kingdom of God and knowing the love of the eternal Father. All the nations, all the families. We've got some work to do to get the gospel out to some places and some families here. But let me say it again. All the promises of God are summed up in the Lord Jesus. He is the full and total and complete promise of God. They're all in Him. That's the promise about Jesus. And it's about through Jesus many, many billions of people being brought to faith and brought to righteousness and brought to forgiveness and brought to restoration through faith in Jesus. What are the two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie? Now, I really wrestled with this. Most commentators say his, his promise and his oath. He made a promise and then he swore it. So it's those two things. But I, I couldn't get my head around that one. And Finally, I found a, one or two people who, had, who pointed me in the right direction. So I'm with the Minority Report on this one. Not the movie. You know. Hebrews is one long, unbroken sermon. You're supposed to read it right through. And a few commentators helped me to see that, starting right back in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, there's this long process of the Apostle introducing to us what he really wants to say more than anything else, that Jesus is a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Which still sounds weird to us, but we'll get there. Right? That's what he's, that's what he's after. And so right back in chapter 5, the apostle makes two major statements concerning the Lord Jesus. And it's those, I believe, that are the two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Let's look at them. In the same way, Messiah did not exalt himself to become a high priest, but the one who said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. What's that? It's the father Declaring Jesus as his son and that he is reigning as king he's been given all authority in heaven and on earth alright number two also said in another passage which is that first one's from Psalm 2 this one's from Psalm 110 you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek and in fact uh, the apostle chose not to but he, he, uh, you know I could have suggested to him he could have used Psalm 110 verse 1 Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Again, the Lord says to my Lord, he swears an oath, you're going to sit here and reign until every enemy is under your feet. It's established by a statement, a sworn statement of Almighty God, that Jesus will not cease to reign. In fact, he won't cease to reign after that, but he's going to reign at least until every enemy is under his feet. And then in verse 4, the Lord has sworn, notice this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Remember, this letter is all about Jesus and that Jesus is better. So here's the minority thing. Minority report then. The two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie is that he has sworn to Jesus, in fact, and we get to hear it, that Jesus as the God-man, the God who became man, became flesh, is now exalted as man into the presence of the Father. He is his son and heir and he will reign as king until all things are under his feet. And he has also sworn that Jesus is an eternal high priest. And that will never change. That is the message of Hebrews. That is the context and continued presentation of truth through Hebrews. This appointment of Jesus as king and priest for our sakes forever. It's utterly unchangeable. It cannot be broken. It is eternally so. This earth will be wrapped up in flames and reborn. The cosmos will be changed. You will fold them up like a garment, it says in one psalm. But the fact that Jesus is our king and our priest will never, ever change. Because Amen. Amen. God has sworn it. He's sworn it by himself. So we who have taken refuge in this faith in Jesus Messiah would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. The metaphors get a bit over, overlapping each other here. We've got an anchor that goes behind a veil in the tabernacle kind or of in the temple. Where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Listen, these verses are not a guide on how you get hold of God's promises and make him do something for you. That's not the context here. The main point here is not even promises, but the promise of God. And it's really Jesus himself. See, some people think that faith is a business of how we get stuff from God. Faith is how we get God in Jesus. Faith is how we get to know him and find him and live in him and with him. We have strong encouragement by this unchangeable, sworn, double statement that Jesus is our King and our High Priest to take hold of the hope set before us. To take hold of the hope of finally and eternally being with Him. If we suffer loss now, we cannot lose our inheritance. Because it's anchored in Jesus, and Jesus is where? In the very presence of the Father. Can you imagine? There is a man, born of the Virgin, a man called Jesus, who stands in the very holiest presence of God with all of the light and all of the fire and all of the glory, and he is totally accepted. He's our anchor, he's our forerunner. Jesus is our hope, and he's the anchor for our soul. And last night we were at the uh, meeting in Harlow Study Center with John Arnott. Pretty good meeting, uh, you know. And uh, I was sitting next to a young guy who was kind of a a Christian, but a little bit mixed up. He went forward to give his life to the Lord at the end. And I'm like, okay. We we had a point where we had to pray for one another, so we did, he and I. And then, then when we'd done all of that, he said, what do you do? And I said, oh, I'm a pastor. I don't always say come out straight out with it, you know. And he said, oh, where, where? And then he looked at me and he said, I can see an anchor. Does that make any sense to you? And I said to him, I'm preaching that tomorrow. Thank you very much. We have an anchor within the veil. The thick curtain that cut off the presence of God from the presence of the people in the tabernacle, in the temple. By the way, the tabernacle was God's design. The temple wasn't. Temple's an imperfect thing. The Tabernacle was a very perfect version of the heavenly reality. The temple wasn't. We have an anchor that goes behind the veil. Now let me let me illustrate this to you. The high priest went behind the veil once a year to make atonement for the sins of the people, and he wore special robes, and they had bells and pomegranates on it, and he had a rope right tied around his his, his ankle. Why? Because as he went in and he was moving around, there was the jingle-jingle of these things on his garment. And if the jingle-jingle stopped, they thought, oh no, God's killed him. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. That's what they feared. Yeah. The, the offering would not be accepted. The high priest would die, and they'd have to pull his corpse back out, which might have been a bit burned even. You know? So the apostle here turns this around and says, Jesus has gone in, and he's not... He's not got a rope around his ankle for us to pull him out. He's got a rope to pull us in. He's our anchor. See, there's a man sitting in the throne of God. He's the king of the cosmos. He is in no measure less than Almighty God, yet he is still the man, Messiah Jesus, and he will never give up being a man because he's our anchor. He is our security of future life and inheritance. He's our king. He's our high priest. There's much more to say about him, and I'm longing to get there. But let's just think a bit more about an anchor for a minute. That's a bit pale. Jesus is the anchor for my soul, It says up there. See, I've I've only been on boats a few times, so I'll tell you about my experience of boats and anchors. You see, you're in this nice little boat, you know, you're, you're, you're sailing around or whatever, and you come in towards the land, and you put an anchor off the front, which is called the bow, and an anchor off the back, which is called the stern. You can see I've done this stuff. <laughs> and, and, and you get into a little s- smaller boat, you know, a little rowboat, and you go into the land and you maybe have a nice lunch, you know, in a taverna or whatever, or, or you buy some supplies, and then you get in the little boat and you go back to the big boat, and you think, where is it? <laughs> no, you don't if you put your anchors down. You put the anchor down so the boat doesn't drift, so it's still there when you want it again. Yeah. All right? That's one way you use an anchor. But if you read through Acts 27, you'll find about five or six v- references to anchors there. It's any other place in the Bible an anchor is mentioned. So you know what that is? It's when Paul is on his way to Rome and there's a huge storm in the Mediterranean. And the ship is being torn apart. And they keep throwing down anchors and then cutting them because they think, oh, that, no, it's, the ship's breaking up, so we'd better just go with it. And they put down another anchor in it and the ship's breaking up again. And eventually they're driven onto rocks. That's a pretty desperate use of an anchor, isn't it? The early Christians, remarkably, they didn't use the cross much as a symbol. That didn't come in until after Constantine's time. The two symbols that early Christians used most were these. A fish and an anchor. The fish is simply this. The Greek word for fish is ichthus, and if you take those letters, those Greek letters, you spell out, let me get this right, Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. It is said, that people used to put fishes, fish signs outside the houses to say this is a Christian household, you're welcome to come in if you're a fellow Christian. And it's said that if a man was traveling who was a Christian and he met a stranger on the road, he would greet him, then he would reach down to the floor and he'd put one arc of the fish line, just the one like that, And if the other man bent down and did the bottom half as well, they greeted each other as brothers in Christ. But the anchor. Now, there's only one verse. This one. In the Bible, where where Jesus is called our anchor. And yet they caught onto that, and they didn't let it go. That is from a funeral uh, stone from the early third century of a Christian. And look at that. Two fishes facing each other, anchor in the middle. Jesus is our anchor. Let me put it to you this way. To keep you from drifting or to keep you from drowning, Jesus is your anchor. It's not merely your self-effort. He is your anchor. His place there with the Father, ruling as our King, representing us as our priest, is our anchor to deal with life here. If we don't see that connection, we will at least drift and perhaps even come to shipwreck of faith, as the people to whom this letter was addressed were in danger of doing. You need to know that you have an anchor. I can think of so many old hymns there right now. One was, We have an anchor that keeps the soul safe and secure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Saviour's love. Thank you for joining in. You need to know you have an anchor. And your soul needs to be fixed and certain on that anchor. You can sing it and take hold of it. It's a song you'll be more familiar with. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor, should be a capital A, that's Jesus, my anchor holds within the veil his oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is still my hope and stay. Christ alone, cornerstone, weak made strong and save his love. Through the storm, he is Lord, Lord of all. Jesus is also declared to be a Forerunner here. All right? I could talk about anchor all day, but I think I've said what he's saying. Jesus said to be a forerunner. What's a forerunner? Someone goes in front of you, who gets there before you. They bring the message so and so's coming. You know? Um, important people are forerunners. People who turn up ahead of them and they say, Are we okay? Are you ready? Is it sorted? You know, you think, oh, that's nice. You've got someone, you know, you've, you've got your personal assistant or you've got, you know, somebody who goes ahead of your agent, goes ahead, make sure it's okay, and then then you can arrive. Now, this is the thing. Get this. Jesus is our forerunner. What? He's gone ahead of us? But he's the important one. Yeah? But he's gone ahead of us. Let's go back to John 14. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. This is like apartments in a big mansion. Right? If it were not so, I would have told you. If it wasn't like that, would I be telling you? For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, do you get the forerunner? I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is our forerunner. It doesn't make him anything less. It makes us wonder in amazement at him even more. You see, his place, thinking now about the future, his place of acceptance with the Father is our place of acceptance. In the epistles it even talks about us. Even now we are seated with him in many places. We're accepted. We're welcomed. But one day, in glorified, resurrected bodies, we will enter in exactly where Jesus is now and be accepted. On Thursday evening, I found myself saying, as preachers sometimes do, you hear the words coming out of your own mouth and you're amazed by them. It happens. That the work of the Holy Spirit in purifying and sanctifying us now is so that when we stand before the holy light and fire of our Master and our God, we will be lit up and not burned up light will shine in us and through us and we'll be at home. He prepares a place for us and he's preparing us for the place. Yeah. Amen. So that we may be with him forever. Jesus is our hope both in this life and for the life to come. Even now we live in him and for him and he is our life. The promises of God in the Scripture are not presented to us as a means of acquiring things, even answers to prayer, but as means by which we lay hold of Jesus himself and find our life in and from him. We even grow to become more like him. We'd like to think that's through just information and revelation, but it's also through experience, through enduring hardships and trials. Let me go to this Scripture in 2 Peter by these, and the context is his glory and goodness, he, God, has given us very great and precious promises so that through them you might fill your bank balance and get a big, big car. I have to smash these things down at times. Then, Listen to this. So that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world, because of evil desires notice all the promises of God which are yes and amen in Messiah Jesus are given to us so that we may share in the divine nature become more like our master be even even dearer beloved children to a heavenly father that's why these promises are there to pull us into him we gain his heart We learn his mind. We grow to become more like him in character. If our being blessed or prospering or even getting our prayers answered doesn't lead us to become more like Jesus, they have no lasting value. That's why he's given us great and precious promises. It's all about Jesus. All the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation. Christ in all the scriptures. I've got a book on my shelves that says that. It's true. All the promises of God. All this life of faith. In the end, He is all we need and all we will ever want forever. So, what now? What does this mean to us? How do we apply it? What does God want from us? He wants us to take refuge in Jesus. He's given a strong encouragement to those of us who take refuge. Where? Where? Where do we take refuge? In Him. The Lord is my rock, my refuge, my fortress, my strong touch. We refuge in Him. We run to Him. I tell you what, when you're in real, real trouble, you'll run to Him, all right? It's best to get used to the habit. <laughs> and do it before you get really, really, really desperate. We take refuge in Him. And we take hold of hope in Him hope for his help now but you know we still live with mess and mixture now but the hope will be that we will live with him in perfection and glory Hallelujah. and joy and bliss forever yep. totally accepted we are destined to become children of light the glory of God, and the light of God will shine right in us and through us we, Jesus says in one place, will shine like the sun in the kingdom of our Father. Why? Because our Father will be lighting us up with His presence. Okay, you're looking amazed or confused. Maybe both. Let's think back to Abraham a minute. God wanted, He he desired Abraham's faith and obedience. He put him to this extraordinary, excruciating test. Offer up your son, your only son. Abraham is to this day still the father of faith. He's the model, the example of faith. And faith comes down to, again, one of the things I learned from a little kid. Two words, son is called trust and obey. Trust and obey. What God is looking for in us and from us is faith that trusts him. Faith that takes him in his word and says, Yes, I will trust you. For that. Faith that prays, that responds back in prayer. Lord, I, this is your promise. I believe this is your word. Would you please do that? You turn it back into prayer. You re- confess it back to him in prayer. You ask him for the thing he's promised because that's polite, isn't it, to ask? Jesus, when he talked about prayer, never ever talked about declaring and declaring. He talked about asking. Never ever talked about declaring and declaring. Not in the words of Jesus. He says that prayer is asking. So we faith prays. Then faith obeys. It goes and does what you've been told to do, what you understand the Holy Spirit is showing you to do. You go and do it. Why? Because then you're blessed with the faithful Abraham. God's p- smile is upon you. His reward is with you. You know, you, you even feel something like his smile when you've done something that he told you to do. Don't you? It's like, oh, that feels good. It's not you patting yourself on the back. You're feeling something of the Father's heart. Commending you. Rewarding you. Faith that obeys. And faith that endures, that just keeps on. Against obstacles, against the wearing down of, of life, the, the pressures of life. You know, it's the, it, it's the devil's uh, job. It's, it's What he's trying to do is to grind you down, wear you out, to wear out the saints of God. So faith responds to that by what? Just keeping on going. Amen. Not giving up. That is just what God wants from us. Exactly that. To trust Him, to believe His Word, to pray, to obey, to endure. Just like Abraham, but even more, just like our Master Jesus. Now, I'm going to jump to almost the very end of Hebrews now. I shouldn't, but I am. To give you these two scriptures before we break bread together. And I've done a lot quicker than I thought I was going to do. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, including Abraham, but plenty more, we'll read about them. Let us, let us, we heirs of the promise, us, the people for whom these things were written right down through the ages, every Christian believer, you know, right from... By the way, just to come back to fishes and anchors, all over the country today there are pub signs preaching. The anchor. The hope and anchor, even. Where did they get that idea from? Because, running right back to even the time when the New Testament was still being written, there were Christians through the Roman Empire who were here in Great Britain. Our Christian heritage runs very deep and very far back. And to this day, people don't know why the, fact why the pub's called the hope and anchor. It's named actually after a scripture. That's how deep our culture goes in Christ. Cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run. You can walk if you can't run. With endurance, the race that is set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Jesus our anchor, our forerunner, the author and perfecter of faith. That means he starts it and he'll finish it. He who began a good work in you will complete it to the end. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God, of the throne of God. He's He's there. And he's our king there, our shepherd king and he's our high priest there our representative our intercessor and where he is we will be also so he's our anchor and our forerunner hallelujah we're going to break bread together Colin has asked six people to come and help us in breaking bread together and as we do so, I was reading in Ezekiel today, totally out of context, I admit it. It's talking about this stylized temple that Ezekiel's prophesying about, which never really came about because Israel didn't fulfill their covenant. But it says there in Ezekiel 42, and there is a table before the Lord. And I went, whoa, out of context, shouldn't do it, but never mind. Guess what we've come to today? A table which is before the Lord. He invites us to come to him, to his table. Now, I don't know about you in your house, but in our house, uh, supper sometimes is, is quite a chatty affair. We talk and talk and we eat and eat. Uh, I usually eat and then talk. But, <laughs> but, you know, you talk over a table. There's conversation. It's a time of building relationship. So it is when we come to the Lord's table we don't just do the little routine we're coming to him and there are things that perhaps we need to say to him and there are things which he wants to say to us he may have said something a lot to you even through what he gave me to preach this morning I was so encouraged by that young man saying I can see an anchor." does that make any sense? or maybe if you'll take the time to listen in these moments he'll say something else to you which I haven't even said but the Lord wants to say it to you it's a time for conversation it's a time for communication it's a time for relationship the Lord has a table before him which he invites us to you spread a table before me even in the presence of my enemies even while they're barking and shouting out there God invites me the Lord invites me to his table So, Father, we thank you that again our Lord Jesus invites us to his table to take hold of bread and wine in memory of his sacrifice, his blood, his body for us, for our redemption, for our freedom. And in this time, Lord, I pray that we might come with hearts that are open to you to receive from you your grace, but also whatever words you want to fit into our mind, into our heart, You want something to sink down deep so it begins to work in us and change the way we conduct ourselves. Lord, we've spoken these words today about you being our anchor and our forerunner. I've even dared to suggest that the rope is there to pull us in rather than for us to pull you out. So now, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit we pray. Produce in us a deeper conviction, a deeper persuasion, and, 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 and assurance that these things are true. They're true not by how well I believe them, but because the Father has sworn them to be unchangeably true in His Son for our sakes. Amen.